Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me today in the SCANA studio are Brittany Tulla and Tom Tisdall. They're with the Charleston World Heritage Coalition. Brittany is the executive director and Tom is a member of the board. And we're going to talk today about making Charleston a world heritage site. So first of all, Brittany and Tom, welcome to the journal. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much, Walter. Brittany, why don't we start with you and you know tell us what the World Heritage Site Coalition is all about. Sure. Well, the Charleston World Heritage Coalition was established in 2012. Homeowner, Charleston homeowner and business owner Stephen Ziff, along with the City of Charleston uh, Historic Charleston Foundation and several others decided to start a nonprofit to make moves to nominate Charleston historic sites in and, ar- in and around the Low Country as a World Heritage Site. And really the conversation began, I want to say in the late 90s, Historic Charleston Foundation began researching, talking about it. Um, and it was in 2007, actually, that the city of Charleston put in their preservation plan page 300, to research what it takes to become a World Heritage Site. So the conversation has been ongoing, but really in 2012 it became official with the organization of the nonprofit. Gosh, that's interesting, going back to 1990 and then 2007. Well, let me ask you, what does one do or how does one go about getting a nomination, putting together a nomination for a World Heritage Site? Well, first we have to get the community involved to make sure they know what World Heritage is and to make sure that they want World Heritage for their historic sites. Really, it is a program. The World Heritage Program was established by the United Nations under UNESCO, United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. And they are the gatekeepers to the World Heritage List. There are 1,031 sites. But nationally, we have to get approved from the National Park Service before we can move forward to UNESCO. So we have to work with them first. Okay. All right. And, and Tom, I know what you've done so many things in, on boards and what have you in Charleston. How is the community reacting to the idea of being a, a World Heritage Site? That's one of the great advantages we have, Walter. The community has accepted this with open arms. All of the major historical associations, Historic Charleston Foundation, everyone. We have uh, about 17,000 active supporters right now, both organizations and individuals. So it's been a wonderful project for the community. And we've got a long way to go, but we think we are in excellent shape to um, achieve this worldwide important distinction uh, in the next few years. Well, I I noticed you both said Charleston and environs. Is this from the Savannah to North Myrtle Beach or? Walter, it's essentially the uh, Carolina Low Country. We believe that our strongest characteristic in our community is the rice culture of the Carolina Low Country, what, where it came from, what it gave to our community, Charleston and beyond, how it got there with Af- African Americans, Europeans, and uh, West Indies, and uh, it all came together to develop art, architecture, and wonderful people, and that is what we are are trying to project in achieving this World Heritage designation. When you start talking about things like World Heritage Site, uh, easements, that kind of thing, and I know folks in Charleston with the Board of Architectural Review, you get very concerned. Would becoming a World Heritage Site have any impact on people's property, conservation easements, that kind of thing? That's a great question, Walter. We get that a lot. And basically, what we plan on doing is nominating national historic landmarks in and around the Charleston Low Country. So we are not drawing one big circle around the Low Country. We will be selecting 
our best representative examples of rice fields, of grand plantation homes, of slave dwellings, of urban compounds that are already national historic landmarks. Now, in August, this past August, we welcomed about eight or nine World Heritage Scholars to Charleston to help us with questions like that, of what would happen after we are designated a World Heritage Site. And we showed them the Board of Architecture Review Ordinances, we showed them our zoning laws, and they said that that is more than enough. Um, the United Nations and UNESCO just wants to see that when they designate a World Heritage Site that it won't be demolished tomorrow or that there is a preservation plan set in place. So places downtown are protected already through the Board of Architecture Review. That is that is perfect. That is already what is needed. As for Drayton Hall and Middleton Place and even places out such as Caw Caw, they already are protected sites in regards to easements, covenants. Um, we have uh, even the lands across from Drayton Hall and Middleton Place are already protected. So it's almost as if our predecessors have done the hardest work for us. Okay. And and Tom, I know you're on the board of Hobcall Barony, so the slave quarters at Hobcall would be part of this, is that correct? It's not a name designee in our application, but that is very typical of the type of property that is designated, as Brittany said, like Middleton, Kalkaw, Drayton Hall, Miles Bruton House downtown, and probably a dozen others that are specific in the close area. Hobcall Barony and the slave community there, Friendfield it's called, Friendfield Village, uh, it would be quite typical of the sort of places that we have designated. I was just thinking in terms of the preservation of African-American sites in the low country that the tangible ones are very few. I mean, you've got Friendfields, uh, you've got McLeod just outside of Charleston, you now have the cabin on Edisto, mm -hmm. the, the mate of which has gone to the to the African American Museum uh, mm -hmm. in in Washington, but praise houses. Mm -hmm. And what we, with this nomination, what we hope to also do is to prove that even places like St. Michael's or Drayton Hall, they actually are representative of the African and African American community because they are the ones who constructed these places, who fueled the money. And so although we may not have uh, certain slave dwellings on certain places, all most of the architecture that we're seeing can really represent that. As you know, Walter, from, from what Jonathan Green, who is on our board, talks about frequently, the rice culture, the rice Rice was brought to to South Carolina Low Country by African slaves. It uh, was planted by the plantation owners, and as you know, Charleston became South Carolina became the wealthiest colony, the colony of Carolina in the United States, mm -hmm. on account of the rice culture, which which was made by. African-American slaves, and they were burdened with producing what we now enjoy every day. You think of architecture, you think of art, both old, I mean, 18th century and 20th to 21st century. 21st century Jonathan Green, 20th century Alice Ravnell, U.G. Smith. You think about the furniture and silver, all of that. Um, in fact, World Heritage Cultural Site made me think about the melting pot that was mm -hmm. the Carolina Low Country in the 18th century with all the various European eight, and now we have to say nine European ethnicities since our friend uh, uh, Larry Rowland has discovered Italian Swiss in Beaufort County prior to the American Revolution, and 24 identifiable West African ethnicities. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we've got, and what were remaining of the coastal Indian nations at, at the time. In fact, the okra pot, the okra soup pot is a Native American utensil. And most 19th century Charleston homes had that clay pot on the back of the stove. It was a slow heat, so it didn't boil over. In fact, there's a movement in Charleston right now to 
reinvigorate okra soup. There's a Facebook page that you can go to called Okra Soup Unite. You know, for somebody who grew up with, and I love okra, by the way, it is an acquired taste, like a lot of things. But uh, the the cooking, we didn't even mention that. That mm-hmm. uh, Brittany, that's an incredible part of the cultural milieu of mm-hmm. of the Low Country. Mm-hmm. We were um, we've been to a couple Carolina Gold um, Foundation meetings where you have different individuals in and around South Carolina who are trying to revive Carolina gold rice over trying to reuse the landscapes and the way they were originally used. Then you have people like Sean Brock, who is really trying to bring back these these historic dishes. And that's what we hope to do with this. Although we will be nominating physical historic sites as World Heritage and honoring the Europeans, the Caribbeans, Native Americans, and Africans that, that lived here, it all... It, it's a mixture. I mean, it affected every ounce of life, the architecture, like the, the arts, and especially the food and what was coming out of our landscape here. And, of course, speech. In reading over the uh, material that Brittany and I reviewed come have this conversation with you today, it reminded me of a book that Sam Stoney and Miss Shelby wrote in 1930 called Poe Bacra, Poe Bacra, mm-hmm. about the social life in uh, Berkeley County in 1930 after World War One and during World War One, It's the same sort of thing that we're talking about here with the food. You know, we, for some folks out there might not know what a buckra is. It's a white person. Poor po buckra. Um, it could be a term of endearment. It could also be a term of opprobrium, depending upon who's saying it and how it's received. Exactly. And uh, we are hoping to revise, revive that book uh, pretty soon, too. It's been out of print for almost 100 years now. Before we get into some more details about the application, let's talk about some of the other World Heritage Sites. What are some of the other sites in the United States? We have 23 in the United States. Uh, the latest has been... Um, the Alamo, and a couple other missions in Texas. And what what is happening in UNESCO and the United States, they have certain gap studies where they identify what properties, what themes would they like represented on the World Heritage List. And I think the relationship between Mexico and the United States, that history is what the Alamo represents, and I think... And Spanish colonial. I mean, exactly. Okay. So, yes, when you go to the Alamo and you see many chain restaurants and whatnot surrounding it. But the collection of the mission still intact is what made it unique. Okay. And, and what else? What are some of the... So we have uh, Monticello and the University of Virginia as representative of Thomas Jefferson architecture. We have the Statue of Liberty. We have Independence Hall. And you can also become a World Heritage Site if you are a natural landscape. And you have to have a landscape that is seen nowhere else in the world, or have an ecosystem that is unlike any other in the world. So the Everglades um, is a World Heritage Site, some of the Great Smoky Mountains, uh, Grand Canyon, Yellowstone National Park, um, and there are many, many out west. Uh, The buildings of Frank Lloyd Wright are just about to go in front of the World Heritage Committee. But a World Heritage Site is something that is significant to all mankind. So you have to prove that what you have on your landscape is seen nowhere else, whether it's the culture it represents, how much of an influence it had on world history, or or the landscape. Worldwide, 1031. Um, there are many that are historic districts, like the Old Quebec which is a world's heritage site because of its intact walled city. You have Venice for its urban planning. But then you also have individual sites like the Taj Mahal. You have Machu Picchu, um, Great Wall of China, uh, the pyramids, these iconic places. And then some not so iconic that are kind of hidden that really represent ancient civilizations that we really need to protect as as a planet, as uh, as an entire human race. And that is really what, what World Heritage is, is to bring cooperation and identification across all countries of what is significant to all of us. Okay. Weren't there some World Heritage sites threatened in the Middle East? Yes, there are. If you go on to UNESCO's 
website. It has all of the World Heritage Sites listed out, and you'll see many in the Middle East are highlighted in red, and those are the ones that are in danger. So a World Heritage Site can go in danger. We know ISIS has destroyed, unfortunately, many World Heritage Sites because of their significance to certain communities. And sites can come off the list. If a site has lost its integrity, if a community does no longer wants it listed, it is reversible. Okay. All right, Tom, I thought at one point you were going to jump in on another World Heritage Site. Well, to what I wanted to, to make certain that we understood and had an opportunity to talk with you about is the beauty and substance of the low country, South Carolina, been in development since 1670 and by our forebears, the Native Americans, long before that. But what has come out of it, as we have said earlier, the art, the architecture, and the beauty is still there, untouched, but preserved. Mm-hmm. It's been preserved as, no, as like no other place in America. And when you integrate all of that with the rice culture that made it all possible, it does make it a World Heritage Site. And we're simply trying to achieve that designation so that everyone in the world will have an opportunity to, uh, to understand it and see it. All right. Well, let, let's go through the process. You, you, you mentioned that the city's preservation plan, this was mentioned on page, page 300. 300. <laughs> yep. You can go right to it. <laughs> so I'm just imagining how many pine trees are going to die for this application. Well, it is very lengthy. We have seen previous nominations, and they are several hundred, even thousands of pages long. Well, I'm delighted my daughters are on pine trees. I'm just, I just. (laughs) Well, but it gives an opportunity, really, if to just put all of this in one place, you know, to really create almost a book of, you know, there are so many publications out there. Um, written by yourself, Walter, by you, Tom, so many great research done. And if we could compile it all into this nomination of whether we get World Heritage status or not, this is a great opportunity for us to do well, that. Are you the only staff person? Are you putting I all this? I am right now, yes. I am the only staff person right now. And with regards to the National Historic Landmarks, this will be a chance to revisit the, des- the nominations of these landmarks to maybe elaborate on certain parts that were not written about. Um, we also will get a chance perhaps to nominate places like Kaka as a National Historic Landmark. Mm-hmm. Because of this process, um, we know the Sono Rebellion, um, its representation as an intact rice plantation. It is required that you must be a National Historic Landmark in order to be eligible as a World Heritage Site, but there is no rule saying that you can't try and nominate something before um, as a National Historic Landmark, get the designation, and then go on to World Heritage. So it really creates an opportunity. Another, another site that we have, de- we have talked about in our application is Gadsden's Wharf, mm-hmm. right there in the center of town, which is where a large percentage of the slaves landed in the United States to work in these rice fields. And, and of course, that will be the site of the International African American Museum. Museum. It will be. And it's a highly important historic site that has not been recognized until recently. The National Historic Landmark process, um, that goes through, first of all, through the state preservation officer. Mm who is still Dr. Eric Emerson, right, mm-hmm. at the State Archives. Mm-hmm. All right. And then where does it go? Department of Interior? So, yes, it'll go through uh, Eric at the uh, South Carolina State Historic Preservation Office. Then it will go to the southeastern regional office of the National Park Service, where they will evaluate it. And then it will go to the main headquarters, I believe, in at the National Park Service for final um, designation. And I'm not sure if the keeper of the National Register is that person that designates National Historic Landmarks or if it is a group of people, but it does have to go through the state and then to the Southeastern Regional Office. What's the timetable? That's a good question. We are currently waiting for the National Park Service to make their decision as to whether or not they believe our nomination is worthy of World Heritage designation. They have until September of 2016 
to decide if we are worthy. They open this process up every 10 years. So if they deem that we are unworthy in our nomination, we our next opportunity will be 2020. Twenty twenty six. Yes, twenty twenty six. So once we get that approval in September, hopefully, fingers crossed, then it could be a matter of years before we go on to the World Heritage Committee. The National Park Service must be the ones to endorse us to move forward. So we work with them if they approve us. You work with the Park Service, but this is really going to be you folks in Charleston got yes. to put it together. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And when you get designated, every, all the power is still left with the local community. There is no one that is going to be coming in and telling us how to dictate how we uh, regulate our property, how we design our property. Everything is to prepare and to show either the National Park Service or UNESCO that we have management systems set in place and we can handle it. So it all the power is left back in the community. One thing we didn't do at the beginning, and and Brittany, you've been working in the preservation field. That's your career, right? It is. So tell us just a little bit about you. Sure. Well, I received my graduate degree in historic preservation from the Clemson College of Charleston Master's Program, housed in Charleston, South Carolina. And I own my own historic research business in Charleston. I help homeowners, business owners, uh, anyone who wants to learn more about their buildings, whether to showcase it or to uh, restore, revitalize. And I also adjunct at the College of Charleston in the Historic Preservation Department. And and then I'm part-time here at the Charleston World Heritage Coalition. And I am really, really loving uh, the preservation world in Charleston. I've been there for about almost 10 years now. Okay. Tom? Well, uh, Walter, uh, I practiced law in Charleston all my career and have enjoyed it very much. It's quite long now. I also uh, have have a small publishing company that publishes books of South Carolina history called Home House Press, which is a most enjoyable uh, uh, venture that Steve Hoffius and I uh, engaged in about six years ago. Uh, also, I do some writing I published a book uh, some years ago called A Lady of the High Hills, uh, Natalie Delois Sumter. That was Thomas Sumter's daughter-in-law. Daughter-in-law, she was indeed. And also, uh, more recently, I wrote a play that was uh, staged at the Dock Street Theater a couple of years ago called Truth in Cold Blood, about very interesting part of Charleston's history in the early part of the 20th century. A very forgotten part of Charleston's history. That's one of the reasons I wrote the play, because it was completely forgotten by almost everybody. We're talking about the murder of Episcopal Bishop William Alexander Geary, and people talk about collective memory in communities, but historians will also tell you there is also collective forgetfulness, and it it happens almost overnight. Bishop Gary's murder was headlines across the country for about a week. In 1928. Yeah, and then it literally dropped off the map. Walter, many of the facts that were uh, brought back to life in the play were simply uh, inconvenient facts, and for that reason forgotten for many generations. So I'm very that is the greatest outcome of the play is to revive that memory. We digressed a little bit from the World Heritage Site, but I think, you know, again, our listeners like to know a little bit about our guests. And right now I have to pause to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Brittany Tula and Tom Tistel about the Charleston World Heritage Coalition. Okay. Tom, I think you were going to add something else uh, before we had to identify ourselves. Well, uh, I will say that what we have been digressing about is actually a part of what we're trying to do with our World Heritage application. It's reviving the past so that it can be known for us going forward into the future and enrich our lives but I also wanted to say as an aside, but very important one, uh, our leader in this whole thing, besides Brittany, is 
a man in Charleston, a gentleman named Stephen Ziff, who uh, has put a lot of time and effort into this and has done a wonderful job getting us all together headed in the same direction. So we very much appreciate what he has contributed to our effort. Tell me a little bit about Mr. Ziff. Mr. Ziff, he, I believe, came from uh, New York. He came from North. He's been living in Charleston since the late 1980s. I believe they purchased their house in Charleston right before Hurricane Hugo. So he has quite a number of stories about that. Um, But he has done extensive travel um, across Europe. I believe he's been to Asia. I believe he's been to many different places. And it really stemmed from him seeing these different World Heritage sites in and around the world and coming back to Charleston and thinking, well, hey, we have something here that is definitely worthy of that status. We could become perhaps a World Heritage site. And with that, he revitalized the conversation and really was the one that started this mission back up. I think one of the interesting and wonderful things about 21st century Charleston is that there are a lot of people or a number of people from off who have moved in who have made a difference in the community. Tom and I both have served on the board of the South Carolina Historical Society, but there have been people from out of state who've moved in who not only have joined the society but have been very generous in terms of donations, their time, and they have become adopted South Carolinians. I know they weren't birthed here, but for 300 years, people came to South Carolina, and they continue to do so. We are all immigrants in one way or another. Some are newer immigrants, some are older immigrants. Yes, that's what Franklin D. Roosevelt said to the DAR at Constitution Hall. Um, My mother used to talk about that. (laughs) He said to them, welcome fellow immigrants. And of course, there was a a reason behind that, because they would not let Marian Anderson sing in Constitution Hall at the time. So let's talk about some of the, the landmarks. People know about Middleton Place, Drayton Hall. Believe it or not, I'm not so sure that they know that much about the Miles Bruton House. The Miles Bruton House is right down on King Street, as you know, I think 21 King Street. There's a lot of history uh, about that house. One thing that is top in my mind about it is uh, Aaron Burr's grandson, Aaron Burr Alston, Theodosia Burr's son, was born on the second floor of that house at a time when Aaron Burr was vice president of the United States. That was, was that before or after he killed Alexander Hamilton? It had to be before, I think. The Brit- reason we've decided to include Miles Burton House, now it is a private home, so you can have both public and private <clears throat> property included. A property does not have to be open to the public in order to be eligible. But Miles Bruton, we know he was a big slave trader and yeah. he was a big rice planter. And we know the home is one of the best examples of this urban Georgian architecture with the compound of the outbuilding still intact. So it's almost absolutely the people that live there and the stories they they have and, and, and the role they played in the rice culture, but also how that is directly correlated in what we're seeing in the building. Bruton built the house, but he didn't live there very long before he and his family were all lost at sea. Mm-hmm. But the Pringles and the Alstons who inherited the the house and live there, um, the current occupants, the Manigos, I mean, they're all connected, right. all with the rice rice culture. Mm-hmm. And of course, the documents were created by the Pringles with regard to the rice culture, Elizabeth Halston Pringle, mm-hmm. and the, the wonderful modern book that was written about the family, Mary's World. You couldn't come to a richer site, a building that encompasses every, every mm-hmm. aspect of what you the culture the enslaved labor, mm-hmm. the big house, the intact yard. Most people don't realize that that goes all the way through. Yes. To, it has a, there's a, is there still entry to the marsh in the back, or has that been? No, actually, Mr. Ziff lives on the house that backs up. So the house on Legree Street was built in 1850s. And what happened was because the Pringle family, I believe, the, they, they needed funds, they needed money because of, of course, you know, the approaching Civil War and what's happening in Charleston. But they sold off the back marsh 
and they built an Italianate single house, um, and that is actually where the, the property is so. growing. Yeah. Okay. So it all comes full circle in a way. Well, <laughs> but going back to Theodore Shaburra for a minute, uh, she was married to Governor Olson, and their only son, Aaron Burr Olson, was born there, and the f- house then was had an Alston connection. Then that tie, she went to Georgetown County. Yeah, and she was headed to uh, to see her father in New York, Aaron Burr, when she herself uh, was lost at sea, as you know, on a ship off of uh, Nags Head. Well, yeah. And what we're trying to do now is to um, figure out, you know, we know Georgetown was also a very major uh, port city, and, of course, we know Charleston, so where do we draw the line of what... What plantation homes, you know, what rice fields actually contributed to the port of Georgetown and which contributed to Charleston? But like you said, if you think about it, it all comes full circle. Everyone is connected to everyone. Um, and so part of our nomination process and part of the approval process from the National Park Service is they will then help us identify what sites they believe. So we give them suggestions, and then hopefully they can really help us finalize that. And, of course, going south, you've got to look at Beaufort. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. Although that really is more Sea, sea Island cotton. Mm-hmm. Rice, too. I mean, it began as with rice culture. And I think you're blessed with the fact that in both Georgetown County and Beaufort County, you've got very strong local historical mm-hmm. societies. As Brittany indicated a minute ago, our application so far has centered all on the properties in and around the city of Charleston. But at, at some future date, there's no reason that can't be expanded. As, as we wish and as is necessary. All right, well, let's talk about some more. We mentioned Miles Bruton. You keep talking about Caw Caw. Yes. Caw Caw is very unique in the sense that we know that it is somewhat the, the gateway to the Ace Basin, which is thousands of acres of, of protected uh, wetlands and rice fields. And Caw Caw really, <laughs> we believe, is a great example of what a working rice plantation looked like. Unfortunately, we do not have any uh, structures in regards to slave housing and, and workhouses, but we do have some dikes. We do have the canals. The landscape is there. And the Charleston County uh, Parks Recreation Commission has been such a wonderful partner. They are involved in this as well. And also, you think about the Stoner Rebellion in 1739 of how much of an impact and, and how important that is on history. That that happened here in the Low Country, and there's a reason that happened here. So we actually, when we brought um, experts to Charleston from different countries, Barbados, Spain, Germany, Canada, they came here to help us evaluate if we were el- eligible this past summer, which is when they mentioned the BAR would be more than enough. We took them out to Kaka and they were blown away. They had seen it right before they saw Drayton Hall in Middleton. And when they saw the properties in one day altogether, it started to make a lot of sense to them. And, and they agreed that that is worthy of a designation and worthy to tell the world about. And Kaka is is a great example of, of what a working plantation would have been. And then, of course, the Asher River, of course, the plantation homesteads. Okay. And and in the city itself, what are some of the other sites that So we are? we've identified um, quite a number the old exchange building, uh, the old slave mart. We have uh, Emmanuel AME. We have oh, I was going to ask about that. Yes, we've um, I mean the history of that structure and of course in light of the recent events, we believe that that is something But you had it on the list before. We had it on the list before. We did, um, and that really stems from the Denmark, BC, and 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 the establishment of that congregation. Um, we also have the Aiken Red House for its urban compound. St. Michael's Church, as Brittany mentioned earlier, which mm-hmm. is a landmark nationwide. Mm-hmm. Charles Courthouse diagonally across from St. St. Michael's is one of the structures. Okay. Uh, one thing that came to my mind a minute ago when Brittany mentioned the Denmark Vesey situation, is a recent book that somewhat well interprets that whole thing with the manual church, Denmark Vesey, and so forth, is a Sue Monk Kid's book called The Invention of Wings. Mm. And it also is a great example uh, describing city life in the mid-19th uh, century. Mm-hmm. We hope that we can identify residential, commercial, 
and public buildings, whether it's the grandiose architecture that represents the money that came from the rice culture and the physical artifacts of the work the work of Africans and African Americans or like Gadsden's Wharf is something on our list and we are also partnering up with the International African American Museum to see if we can use Gadsden's Wharf as part of our site although it's buried underground now we hope that with the museum and with its interpretation we could um, incorporate that but all these places kind of represent the rice culture, the contributions of the African population, and then this infusion of European and Caribbean and the culture that ensued. So it's it's not just the dwellings and it's not just the outbuildings. It's also the commercial and cultural buildings that also uh, contributed. Right. The commercial buildings, that piques my, my interest, my curiosity. Um, there are not any rice mill. You've got the remains of the rice mills. There's, there are not any rice mills. There are uh, no rice mills. But, but you do have wharf structures, warehouses. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm thinking more about some of the smaller town. Georgetown and Beaufort may have more of those that mm-hmm. left than downtown Charleston. Although, clearly, East Bay. East mm-hmm. Bay Street mm-hmm. be a good example of uh, commercial structures. That's where uh, George Alfred Trenum's company uh, was located. Uh, early on, before the Civil War. The commercial aspects of the city, of course, are also very, very important to filling out the uh, the world heritage importance of uh, our surroundings. You mentioned the exchange, and people might not realize that in the colonial period that the water side of the exchange actually was on the water. That was Charleston's grand entrance just like the great railroad mm-hmm. stations of the early 20th century in, in mm-hmm. Europe and America. Not like the airports today, but, I mean, it was the entrance to the city, and you landed at the foot of mm-hmm. a set of stairs. Yes. Uh, well, I just wanted to mention one other one that is sort of interesting in the harbor that is part of certainly our world heritage and is perhaps better known than uh, because of that than many of our structures and that is Fort Sumter at the entrance to the harbor, which has its own important history. You know, what's fascinating is when we brought our world heritage experts to Charleston, they didn't really think our buildings were unique. You know, we showed them places like St. Michael's and the old exchange, and and they they confirm, you know, we have these places where we come from, you know, we have historic cities, but it was the relationship and the fact that all these structures are intact to tell the story. That is what they thought was rare and unique, that the story is rare, the story is unique, and the fact that all these buildings still exist to tell that story, that's what makes them unique. Okay, okay now that, let's see, that's that's an important mm-hmm. part because that's where I was just saying, I'm forced to you got Everybody's got a brick for you know, Savannah's got one, Fort Pulaski, right. Mobile, New Orleans. I mean, you know, they're sinking into the swamp down there below New Orleans, but they're there. But, of course, Walter, uh, the Slave Mart Museum was unfortunately a commercial business uh, back in the time. Mm-hmm. But it's a symbol of what happened then. And as unfortunate as it is, it's part of our history and our heritage. Well, I'm on the board of the International African American Museum, and the plans that are underway for the interpretation of that site are just very, very exciting. They're going to be the latest in terms of technology, interactive exhibits, but it's all because of Gadsden's Wharf when the slave trade was reopened in the early 19th century. That was where mm-hmm. slaves came, and there actually was a wharf that had a brick warehouse mm-hmm. where these human beings were stored. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was a term mm-hmm. that was used. Mm-hmm. And uh, wouldn't it be fascinating? We, there are World Heritage Sites along the western banks of Africa, you know, wouldn't that be so interesting and so critical to the story if we could complete that on the North American side? Looking down the line, let's assuming everything goes right in the fall of 2016, what are the challenges in making this come to reality? Well, I think the biggest challenge is to really physically produce this 1,000-page nomination. Now, it will 
being in Charleston, we have a lot of research done already on our buildings. We have a lot of supporters. We have um, property consent from the properties we've already identified. So people are on board. Now, it's just a matter of compiling all this research and putting it on a world history scale. You know, we've been looking at Charleston history for decades and hundreds of years of, of, of yes on, on different levels and different capacities, but to really come together and put this one story on a world history scale is going to be a lot of work. It's going to be exciting, but I think that's going to be the challenge. And it's also going to be interesting to really uh, make sure that everyone understands the process, that the community understands it, that they're educated on this World Heritage Program, because unfortunately in the United States we don't talk about it as much as Europeans, Asians, Africans. I mean, they, they talk about, they, they understand world heritage. So I think education, and then of course, making sure we can put all of it together in one concise document. And that sounds mind boggling. I love the a concise document, a thousand pages. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know. But we've seen past nominations, and like I said, they've done really beautiful jobs of creating these books, and you can actually have a final product. It's not just a National Register nomination or a National Historic Landmark nomination. It's not a form. It's really, it, it's a book. Well, I mean, my mind just keeps running through all sorts of things of how you tie it in. Uh, with what's been the writing about the Low Country that's actually been going on for t for two centuries, uh, the physical land, the gardens, whether you're talking about Middleton Place or mm -hmm. just the idea of the traditional Charleston town garden, mm -hmm. the art, and again, I like to think about not just the rice culture. A lot of the architecture, but a lot of the decorative arts were produced by people of. German ancestry, mm -hmm. French ancestry, but the, when the, the final product, they may use an English design, but the interior techniques were German technology, and it was produced on a scale for a rice plantation house. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, there are just so many ways you can tie all this in together. That's what I find so exciting is, is we originally wanted to include the whole plantation economy, not just focus on one cash crop, but to really focus on the entire system. And we were told by the National Park Service, by our international experts, you really have to nail in one specific cash crop. What manipulated and what changed the landscape truly of Charleston? And that's where the rice falls in. But this gives us an opportunity to kind of embellish and kind of talk about what is also happening, what's also contributing. And so we will get to highlight places like, um, you know, up in Georgetown or talk about the art, the German immigrants. I mean, these are the tradesmen that are actually constructing the buildings as well alongside the African slaves. And, and somehow you've got to work in the fact that the first cowboys in America were black males who tended cattle in the area between Charleston and Beaufort. That is correct. Yes. But as I said earlier, the uh, the exciting part to me of all of this is that everything that we've been talking about, the ambience of the whole creation in the low country, is preserved. Mm -hmm. And as before, our eyes right now on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to do is present that to the world. Todd, let me ask this, because you, cause you and, and Nina live right downtown. We do. And whew, the people everywhere. World Heritage Site's probably going to attract more people. How is it living right downtown on Broad Street like y'all do? Walter, uh, we, of course, enjoy Broad Street. Uh, I've been in the house there for 46 years now. And I told Nina the other day that uh, next time I go out, it's going to have to be feet first. <laughs> but... Uh, we do have a lot of people, but it's fine. It's wonderful having a lot of people because you can see on the faces of these people that they are enjoying what they are experiencing. Now, part of it that might not be so pleasing uh, is the number of cars presently on the streets. And we have to uh, figure out some way to manage transportation within the narrow streets of the peninsula and in West Ashland and Mount Pleasant and East Cooper. But we are, we are sharing people. 
and uh, we look forward to sharing our heritage with people who are interested in it in the future as well as we have in the past. That is also a part of what this World Heritage designation is about. We like to share. That's the Southern way, Walt, as you know. Well, what I always say is World Heritage is a global celebration of local heritage. So if we get this designation, which is a world-class moniker, we will be able to use this to kind of not necessarily prohibit development or restrict development, but to kind of look at it of how it's going to affect the local culture. We'll always be looking back at the local culture with this World Heritage nomination. And it also is going to encourage uh, international travel. We've done lots of studies on this, and we are continuing to do studies, is that domestic tourism will not necessarily increase, but it's the international uh, tourism that will see the most uh, difference, and they will be coming to Spileto Festival. They will be coming to things that that they want to experience. The local culture will be the forefront of their travels. It all goes together. For example, at Spileto is a presentation of the opera Porgy and Bess, which uh, is a part of what we have to offer that, again, describes our culture. Jonathan Green, one of our fellow board members, has designed the sets and the costumes for that opera. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I was just thinking, besides tourism, in terms of business mm-hmm. re- recruitment, economic development, I mean, it's, as you say, said, Brittany, it's a moniker. We are now a world cultural heritage site. Mm-hmm. Another thing we like to think about with this world heritage process is this is really an opportunity for us to tell the whole story. This is such an opportunity that we really can't pass up to get this story out there and the story of the infusion of African culture with the European Caribbean and this cash crop that really manipulated a landscape. It may be the rice fields in the low country, one of the largest man-made landscapes in the entire world. We have to get confirmation on that, but I believe that it, it is up there. Well, I mean, when you talked about Kaukau uh, with the rice canals and the rice fields, I mean, rice changed the entire landscape because if you look at Cooper and McCord's laws of South, statutes of South Carolina, Tom, as an attorney, there's a whole book, a whole volume dedicated to rivers, bridges, and cuts, and cuts where you're linking one creek with another. And because the minute you do that, you're, cha- you're changing. A modern one would be the Wapu Cut. Yeah. Right there, West Ashley. Mm-hmm. I mean, but, but you're changing the landscape permanently. And heck, even from the bridge there at Georgetown, you look, you look there across the Waccamaw mm-hmm. River and you can still see the rice fields. Mm-hmm. They're functioning rice trunks all along the Waccamaw. That's right there on the right is where Hobcaw Barron is. 18,000 acres of protected land with mm-hmm. many, many, used to be 11 plantations full of rice fields. The fields are still there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think you folks have got, it's a tremendous opportunity. You've also got a big challenge. 2016 again, everything is going right. How long is it going to take you to put this together, Brittany? Well, Steve says that once we get on, we got to try and get off. You know, we want to get this. We want to. We want to get this designation as soon as we can, and um, it will take a lot more than just me to to make this make this possible. We really hope to engage the community, engage everyone, people that have written um, already. We do have international consultants in Paris that are help guiding us through this process. Because, like I said, we were learning as we go for a while with World Heritage, um, but we really hope to put a plan together uh, before September 2016, so in case we are selected, fingers crossed, that we will have a game plan set in place so we can really hit the ground running. Okay. Alfred's given me a sign. It's about time to wind up. Any last words that you'd like to say before we sign off? Tom simply, sim- simply and quickly, we very much appreciate your giving us this opportunity to be with you today on this important subject. And Brittany? Yes, thank you, Walter, very much for allowing us to talk about this. And for anyone that is interested in this process, uh, we have a newsletter that goes out every month where we update you on what we're doing and what the next step is. Our website is charlestonworldheritage.org. 
And you can, like I said, sign up for our newsletter, get updates. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We just want everyone to know that we are doing this, and this is for the good of the community and really for the good of our history. Um, we hope that Charleston, we know in Charleston our history is worthy of every designation, but we really want the world to know that what we have is something special. Well, Brittany Tala and Tom Tisdall from the Charleston World Heritage Coalition, thank you so much for being with us thank today you. on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It was fun having longtime friend Tom Tisdall back on the journal and Brittany Tola. Her enthusiasm is contagious. The idea that Charleston could become a World Heritage Site is exciting not just for the folks in Charleston and the Lowcountry. It's really exciting for all of us in South Carolina because it's a part of our collective history. It will bring additional attention from around the world to a very special part of the world, our world, the Carolina Low Country. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.